Uh, I want to draw your attention, first of all, to an insert in the bulletin. And uh, it's my fault. I couldn't think of a better title than teacher seminar, but it's not really a teacher seminar on October 1st. Um, this is a challenge. This is our challenge this morning. I think when you hear the Word of God, you ought to respond to the Word of God. You ought to start something, stop something, whatever it is God's speaking to you about. And this is going to be our response this morning. And it's not just for teachers. It's for all of us. And on October 1st, we're having a seminar uh, con- looking at what the Bible says about children, our responsibility as God's people to children, and so on and so forth. We've got a few folks that have been holding the the lines over in the Ed Wing every Sunday for a long time, and they need help. Um, their arms are getting tired, they're getting a little weak, but they persevere, and they need some help. And uh, I want this to be a challenge to all of you, whether you've ever worked in children's ministry, you've thought about children's ministry, to uh, let us know and come to the seminar. Nothing beyond that. Doesn't mean you're going to be a teacher, doesn't mean you're going to be uh, uh, an assistant or anything at all. Just let the Lord speak to you on October 1st. Uh, Simpson, Jen are going to be sharing. I'm going to be sharing. Julie Degler is going to be sharing throughout that day. We really need this to also know how many to plan for as far as lunch because we're going to provide lunch and all of that. So I just want you to let this soak for a little bit and uh, consider as God speaks to your heart this morning. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 15. And I'm really convinced the reason most folks that aren't involved aren't involved is because they have told themselves some very dangerous assumptions. Dangerous to their own spiritual well-being as well as danger to the body of Christ and what it's attempting to do. Genesis 15. We'll get there in just a moment. But I want to kind of lay a foundation this morning. And uh, that is this. How many times have you heard, you can't do that? How many times have you told yourself... I can't do that, or that won't work, or that's impossible, or that's not me, or that will never happen. There was a scientific study done entitled, Is There a Paleolimnological Explanation for Walking on Water in the Sea of Galilee? You might want to look up paleolimnology. I had to. Uh, Paleolimnology is a scientific study of freshwater lakes and pools and ponds. That's simply it. Just a study of freshwater lakes and and ponds and things like that. Doran Knopf was a foremost expert in oceanography and limnology. And he says over the past several thousand years, a rare combination of atmospheric conditions might have caused patches of ice to float on the Sea of Galilee. You see where this is going, don't you? Knopf calculated that the chances of this floating phenomenon, the chances of it happening is less than one in every thousand years. Less than one chance in every thousand years. But those odds didn't keep him from questioning whether Jesus walked on water. Maybe Jesus was surfing on a patch of frozen ice. I think Jesus walked on water because the Bible says he walked on water. But I'm not sure which I'd rather see. 
balancing on a patch of floating ice all the way to the middle of the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night with high waves and low visibility? That seems almost as miraculous as walking on water, doesn't it? Now, Knopf concludes with this. Whether this happened or not, that is Jesus walking on water, whether this happened or not is an issue for religious scholars, archaeologists, anthropologists, and believers to decide on. As natural scientists, we merely point out that unique freezing processes probably happened in that region several times during the last 12,000 years. Now, as a naturalist, this scientist, Knopf, he doesn't have a category for the supernatural. But he did what so many of us do. When something doesn't fit our preconceived cognitive, rational thinking process, we, like Knopf, explain it away or ignore what we can't explain away. So instead of embracing the supernatural and embracing the mystery of God, we come up with human explanations for a supernatural phenomenon. Instead of living in wonderment, we try to make God fit within the logical limits of our mind. And that doesn't make us smart. That makes us small-minded. And God isn't the one that's diminished. We are. See, not only does God disrupt our routines, he challenges our assumptions. In the beginning, God made man in his image, and we've been returning that favor ever since. And we make God in our image. Now, the result that we end up with is a God that's about a half inch bigger than we are. But the fundamental mistake is to think about God in human terms. A.W. Tozer has written a number of books, one called The Knowledge of the Holy. And he says in this vein, that whenever we begin to think of God in human terms, thinking of God like us, assuming certain things about life and living, he says that we're left with a God who can never surprise us, never overwhelm us, never astonish us, never transcend us. And I wonder how many of us have that God this morning that we've created about a half inch bigger than us, and we understand coming in. He's not going to surprise us this morning. He's not going to overwhelm us this morning. He's not going to astonish us this morning. He's not going to transcend us this morning. I mean, he never has. Why would he today? Thomas Jefferson loved the teachings of Jesus, the third president of our country. He called the teachings of Jesus the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered to man. But Jefferson didn't have any cognitive category in his thinking for miracles, for the supernatural, for God to actually show up and do something. And so Jefferson literally took a pair of scissors and cut the miracles and the things that he couldn't 
come to grips with in his mind, took a pair of scissors and cut them out of his King James Bible. Took him two or three nights to do that. And by the time he was done, he had cut out the virgin birth, cut out the angels, cut out the resurrection, cut out every miracle, and the result was a book entitled The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, or what is commonly referred to as the Jefferson Bible. Now that's hard to imagine, isn't it, for us? Something kind of rises up inside us, those that believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Part of us kind of scoffs at Jefferson and says, well, you can't pick and choose which parts of the Bible you want to you believe. You can't cut and paste. But while most of us would never take a pair of scissors and cut verses out of the Bible, we do exactly what Jefferson did. We ignore verses we can't comprehend. We avoid verses we don't like. We rationalize verses that we feel are too radical for our life. We pick and choose the truths we want to accept. And we become trapped by our own logic. Our lives become limited to those things we can comprehend with our brains. And we end up in a cage of our own assumptions. And the more assumptions we make, the smaller our lives become. Enter Abraham. Genesis 15, and let me read just the first few verses. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now it's easy to read right past that and think nothing of it. God promised Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. So what? We've heard that story many times, those that have followed Jesus for any amount of time. But what God did, I think, was just as significant as what God said. And we read right past it. Did you get it? Look at verse 5. He, that is God, God took him outside. Abraham was holed up in his tent. He was staring at an eight-foot ceiling at as far as he could look ahead. And God took him on a field trip and gave him an assignment. Count the stars. I wonder how long that took. <laughs> I'll bet it was an all-nighter, right? Some of you students. But by the time Abraham had lost count, he'd never look into the sky the same again. The stars were a nightly reminder to him of the promise God had made. 
I was reading this week a passage about Teddy Roosevelt, one of our past presidents, and he had a naturalist friend named William Beebe. And he took William Beebe, his naturalist friend, kind of like Knopf, the uh, scientist I shared about earlier, uh, holding the same worldview, and he would take him outside after dinner and look into the sky. And Roosevelt, who was kind of an uh, astrology buff, would locate a faint spot of light in the lower left corner of Pegasus and then said, that is the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It's larger than our Milky Way. It's one of a hundred million galaxies. It has it, it, 750,000 light years away. It has a hundred billion suns, all of which are larger than our sun. And Roosevelt would then pause and say to his friend, now I think we feel small enough, let's go to bed. Why did God take Abraham outside? Because as long as he's in his tent, he has a man-made ceiling that's blocking his vision. And it kept the promises of God out of sight. I think there are five things that Abraham was was assuming there are the very things we assume that keep us in a cage and keep the promises of God for our lives out of sight. Dangerous assumption number one. Assuming we know more than we really do. Abraham assumed he knew quite a bit. But he assumed he knew more than he knew. We make far too many assumptions about what is and what is not possible in the physical universe. And we do the same thing spiritually. That's where we are this morning, folks. This is what God wants to confront us with. And those assumptions become ceilings that limit our lives. One of the most dangerous assumptions we can make is assuming we know more than we really do. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 says, The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. See, the smartest people in the world aren't the people that know the most. The smartest people in the world are those who know how much they don't know. Or to put it another way, the smartest people in the world are the people who make the fewest assumptions. Listen, pride gets offended. The old nature gets offended. We get upset when our assumptions are challenged. When I've already told myself and convinced myself I can't do something... And somebody takes issue with that and tells me I can't. We don't like that. Because we think we know more than they do. We know more than we really know. But the more faith you have, the fewer assumptions you will make. Why? Because with God, what? All things are... <laughs> there you go. According to the research of Rolf Smith, he asked... It says, children ask 125 probing questions every day. 125, imagine, the kids, the children, 125 probing questions every day. 
Adults, on the other hand, only ask six. That means somewhere between childhood and where we are now, we lost 119 questions. Kids ask questions like, why do whales live in water? We make assumptions about that. Why do planes go over cars? Why do horses bounce? That student was corrected and said, you mean trot? Said, no, bounce. Why do they bounce? I'll give you one I got yesterday. We had a middle school outing and, uh, and a couple of the guys were gathered around. I said, Pastor Rick, Pastor Rick, what, what, what does amen mean? I said, well, you know, like truly, truly, so be it, you know. Yeah, it, it doesn't make sense. It's a plural and a singular. It's a, a, a single, single, singular and a plural. And I said, what are you talking about? A, you know, that's singular. Men, that's plural. <laughs> so you think it should be a man? The men? Thank you in Jesus' name, the men. That's how they think. Why not? We don't do that. And not only are they interested in everything, they think everything's possible. Children don't make assumptions. They swim in a sea of possibilities. And unfortunately, at some point, we stop asking questions and start making assumptions. We stop gazing at the stars and start gazing at our eight-foot ceiling. And I'll tell you this, the only limits are the ones you put on yourself. One reason I think God gives us children is to challenge our adult assumptions. But what did Jesus say? Unless you become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Boy, we've got to get back to that. Dangerous assumption number two is 90-year-old women don't have babies. <laughs> See, children never would say that. They don't know what can't be done. They don't have eight-foot ceilings in their lives. They haven't defined what is and what isn't possible. They don't have any assumptions. They don't have any impossibility. They don't have any I can't. 90-year-old women don't have children. That was an assumption Abraham made. It's a fair assumption, though, isn't it? Come on, Pastor, really. I mean, let's get serious. Really. Anatomically, biologically, gynecologically, impossible for a barren, postmenopausal woman to have a child. Come on. Is it? Romans 4, verse 18 through 21 says, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. He knew that. Since he was 100, about 100 years old, Sarah's womb was already dead. He knew that. 
Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised to do. That's where we need to get. We ain't there. Because you know what? We're too logical. Faith is not logical. Faith is not. It is logical to come to the conclusion that a 90-year-old postmenopausal woman can't have children. That's logical. But faith isn't logical. Not illo- it's not illogical either. You say, well, what is it? It's theological. Theos, the Greek word for God, ology is the study of. Faith puts God in the circumstance. Faith puts God in the situation. Well, I got my eight foot ceiling and I can't and I wouldn't and I can't and this and that. Because of this, oh, we got a reason, don't we? They sound good. Well, you know, my health, well, this and that and the other thing. And, and I've got, and I don't know. And, you know, that's, that's logical. That's not faith. Talk about being a faith-based community. But with that kind of thinking, you're not faith. Faith puts God into the situation. Well, all these things are true. That's right. I, I am weak. I am not this. I am not that. I, I am this. I am that. Whatever our r- rationale is. But faith puts God in there. And that changes everything. Because with God, all things are. Yeah. Faith doesn't ignore reality. It just adds God into the equation. Abraham faced the fact but he was fully persuaded God had the power to deliver on what he promised. Faith isn't mindless ignorance. It simply refuses to limit God to the logical constraints of assumptions. Logic questions faith. Faith questions assumptions. So let me ask you a question. What eight-foot ceiling have you placed on God? What eight-foot ceiling are you sitting under, hindering the promises of God and the will of God and the purpose of God for your life to come to fruition? What assumptions are keeping you caged? Dangerous assumption number three, I'm too old. That was Abraham's assumption, well, I'm too old. That's a common assumption that keeps us chained. If you've been around church any time, have you ever heard somebody use that? Hey, would you like to this? Would you like to that? Could you help here? I'm too old. Well, I did that years ago. I, I'm too old. That's the assumption that Abraham had to challenge. He was 100 years old. His body was as good as dead. But against all hope, what? He kept hoping. Never too late to become who you might have been. You think about that one for a minute. The Bible's full of late bloomers. Jesus was 30 when he transitioned from carpentry to ministry. Moses didn't get into leadership till he was 80. Noah was in his 500s when he built the ark. I don't care how old you are, if you're still breathing, God isn't finished with you yet. God has something for you to do. Dangerous assumption number four. I'm too young. 
You're never too young either. But inexperience leads to another false assumption that keeps us caged. David was a kid when he fought Goliath. Mary was a teenager, a young teenager, when she gave birth to Jesus. Disciples were probably 20-somethings. If age or experience were qualifications, none of them would have done what they did. Anyone ever ready to get married? Anyone ever ready to have kids? Anyone ever ready? I had a, I had a good friend in, in high school, and after high school we went our separate ways, and it was like 20 years later. Uh, my mom and dad started attending a church down in Roanoke, and uh, so we were in town one time and visiting. We were going to church with them. That friend was pastoring at church. And we couldn't believe we kind of shared our stories briefly and then talk a little more afterwards and how he had come to the Lord, I'd come to the Lord, God called him into ministry, so on and so forth. And he and his wife had been married uh, several years at the time, and, and I'd asked if they, about children. He said, oh, we, we don't have any children yet. We're waiting until we can afford them. <laughs> they, ever, they never had any children. <laughs> if you wait till you can afford them, you'll never have them. <laughs> You can hang on to assumptions or you can challenge assumptions, but you can't do both. I'm not sure what assumptions you have to challenge. But inexperience, inability, lack of knowledge will keep you in a cage. We feel unqualified because of something we haven't done, something we can't do, something we don't know. I think those that God uses... The most are those who make the fewest assumptions. Joshua didn't assume the sun couldn't stand still. Elisha didn't assume an iron axe head couldn't float. Mary didn't assume a virgin couldn't get pregnant. Peter didn't assume he couldn't walk on water. Paul didn't assume dead people couldn't be raised back to life. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we allow Him to redefine for us what is and is not possible. And that changes everything because I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. We quote that, but we really don't live that very well. And a dangerous assumption number five my best is good enough. My best. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Well, just best, do the best you, can, best you can do is the best you can do. That's a dangerous assumption. I don't want to live my life in such a way that the best I can do is the best I can do. Do you? Frankly, my best and your best is not good enough. If I listen, if I fail to pray, and I'm not and I'm not praying, I'm not communicating with God. I'm not having my private time, personal time, devotional time with Him. Then the best I can do is the best I can do. But I forfeit my spiritual growth and my spiritual potential. But when I pray, listen, when I pray, the best I can do is no longer the best I can do. The best I can do becomes the best God can do. And he's able to do immeasurably more than all I could ask or think, right? I mean, we're Bible folks, aren't we? This is what the Bible says. 
Prayer is one way we can overcome our assumptions and escape all our limitations. Listen, here's another practical illustration. If I fail, Ryan will love me for, for, for sharing this because he doesn't have to, but he'll love me for doing it. Because I've gone after today and he's back and you'll, you'll love him. Uh, but, but I'm going to share it and, and he doesn't have to. And he'll secretly pat me on the back. If I fail to give, okay, if I fail to give, happens all the time. And, you know, well, you know, we had this happen, we had that, well, I'd like to give something, well, we just can't, well, you know, I haven't been, well, we've got this bill, well, I'm just, you know, and I, then the best you can do is the best you can do. And you're keeping God out of the equation of your finances. You're going with logic and your faith is out the window. But if I give faithfully, if I put God in the situation, in my, in my finances, then I begin to stand on the promises of God and I find God can do more with what I have left over than I can do with everything I had to start with. Giving in just stewardship, listen, giving turns money into a spiritual adventure. I don't know how many times, Pat and I, and I'm going to bore you with all the uh, illustrations, but how many times we've just given to God and say, well, don't know what's going to happen this week. We'll probably starve and die, right? Sitting out there on the, right? sitting out there on, the, on the curb, right in the gutter. They'll come along and say, family dead, just right there on the gutter. Starved to death, right out there. Uh, paid to... No, that never happened. Never happened. It was a, kind of an adventure of how God was going to do it, but God always did it. And, and it's so exciting to serve a God that way. And to know God that way. Sometimes we don't connect the dots between our faith and God's faithfulness. If we give beyond our ability, then God can bless beyond our ability. Now follow this. Now listen, let me just a disclaimer right here. God is not a slot machine. You know, if you give for the wrong, wrong reason, God will not honor it. But if your motives are right, if you're a biblical Forgiving biblically, the law of measures kicks in. Say, Pastor Rick, what's the law of measures? You know what the law of measures is. That's the law God uses. With the measure you use, God says, that's the measure I'll use. If you give cheerfully, generously, willingly, sacrificially, regularly, that's all I'm going to give to you. If you're stingy, if you rob from me, I'm not going to help you out at all. That's just the law of measures. You can't outgive God, you know that. And not only do you get back, you get back more than you put in. That's the law of measures. The best you can do is no longer the best you can do. Listen, if you, don't, if you want to live by logic, you want to live by faith, and you're just going to hang on to what you got, well, it was tight, this week's tight, we got this, we got that, the water's off and broke, you know, and all that, God says, okay, I hear you. It's malarkey, but go on, and no, I'm not helping you. But God, you know, we've got these things facing us, we've got this, but we're going to honor you, we're going to be faithful to you, we're going to believe the Word of God, and God says, law of measure is going to kick in. For the record, Abraham was the first person in the Bible known to have tithed. He managed his money the way he managed the rest of his life, by faith, by faith. 
Now, don't feel or let financial greed or fear keep you in a cage. Living generously is way too fun and exciting than to live that way. And we assume the more we give, the less we'll have. But that's unbiblical, isn't it? Absolutely unbiblical thinking. And I wish I could tell you this morning that God always delivers on his promises in 60 seconds flat. Sometimes he does. Most of the time he doesn't. God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees when he was 75 years old. Isaac wasn't born until God was 100. God delivered on his promise. Took 25 years. That's 300 months, 1,300 weeks, 9,125 days. And I'm sure waiting 25 years for God to fulfill his promise must have seemed like an eternity, wouldn't you think? Sometimes a few weeks or a few months seems like that way for us. He, He must have been spiritually confused. He must have been emotionally exhausted. And Sarah was living with a social stigma all that time of being barren. And I wonder if as the years passed, Abraham and Sarah lost some of their laughter. Hard to laugh when you have a deep sadness that never goes away. That's why Isaac's name is so fitting. When that child was born, they called him Isaac, which means in Hebrew, Laughter. Isaac was God's way of giving Abraham and Sarah their laughter back. I think Isaac's name reveals a dimension of God's character. When Sarah laughed at God, he said, Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, logically, yes. Theologically, no. All things are possible. I wonder if God didn't wait 25 years until the thought of Sarah having a child was just totally inconceivable to that couple. And then God broke through that eight-foot ceiling and proved once again, nothing is too hard for God. Isaac was God's way of saying, I'm going to have the last laugh. And he didn't just bless Abraham with a son. Abraham became the father of a nation. And that nation gave birth to the Savior of the world. I think God had the last laugh. But like every spiritual adventure, it starts with a step of faith. Now you're back to your bulletin and your insert. Teachers are all invited, and we've been talking about this, and they've been notified, but I'm talking to those of you that maybe haven't had the opportunity, weren't even aware, didn't know what was going on. I I want you to come October 1. No commitment beyond that point. You come October 1 and just see what God says to you and speaks to you about. Don't assume you're too old. Don't assume you're too young. Don't assume all of these dangerous things assumptions. But every spiritual adventure starts with a step of faith, not of logic, of faith. 
Hebrews 11 says, By faith Abram, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. Well, we're going over to the deck room, but that's, that's all I can tell you. <laughs> that's all I can tell you. You have no idea what's going on from there. But I want you to take a step of faith. I'm going to ask you to respond that way this morning. Abraham was the patron saint of spiritual adventures. He had no idea where he was going, but he didn't let that keep him in a cage. By faith, he left behind the family, his home, and his assumptions. And that's what I'm asking you to do on October 1st. Leave your assumptions behind. Step out of the cage and just show up. And just hear what God wants to say to us about something very, very important in this church and every church. Someone said, people can't discover new lands until they have courage to lose sight of the shore. So yeah, launch out. You don't know where you're going. You know where it might lead. You know what's coming down the way. But I've left the shore. He's calling us into new regions. That's where the adventure is. That's where the excitement is. That's where the joy is. But you have to come out of the cage of your assumptions. You have to be willing to go somewhere you've never been. You have to be willing to sign up. You have to be willing to do something you've never done before. But I'll tell you this. If you take the first step, God will have the last laugh. Father, thank you for these your words to us this morning for this challenge to all of our hearts to really reevaluate where we are, how we've been living, where we've been living. Father, to evaluate uh, as to whether our spiritual lives have diminished, have grown boring, have really seemed like more, more like a ball and chain than a freedom in Christ. And Lord, I believe that there are some here in this place this morning that you have a plan and a purpose for in a way that can encourage not only the young people and minister and challenge and exemplify to them the Christ life, but can also help a good many brothers and sisters who've been holding the lines and strengthening the stakes for a long time and need some help. So I pray, Father, that our response to you will be in this form this morning. The Father, these might find their way to the basket on the back counter. And the Father, we look forward to a great opportunity of adventure. For your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.